Welcome to Sacred Realms. It's a great day in Hyrule, y'all. Welcome to Sacred Realms, a Zelda retrospective podcast. I am your host, Lyndon Willoughby, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host, sibling, confidant, rival, Matt Willoughby. Ah, hey, Lyndon. How you doing, Matt? I'm excellent. I have been so excited about this particular episode since we talked about this podcast. We were lining up our guests and, you know, we knew kind of where we wanted to go and you were kind of teasing me like, oh, I'm going to get someone really great on and we're going to have this great conversation about the Water Temple. And I was like, God, I hate the Water Temple. But the guest got me so excited that I was so looking forward to playing it. And now here we are. We've been we've been absolutely jazzed about about this episode for a very long time, and I'm just as excited as you are to get into it. Before we do that, I just want to say, so if you're my rival, is that like, is, what kind of system is that? Are we talking like Pokemon rivals? No, like, no, no. It's more like um, Dragon Age rivalry system where the like you have the friendship meter or the rival meter, and like you get different types of relationship with, based on where you are. Um, okay, but neither is bad, right? They're just different. See, I kind of like the Pokemon system where you just show up at inopportune moments in my life to like <laughs> to like duel me, and then you 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 say you, you, like you throw horribly dated, um, you know, '90s slang phrases at me, like "smell you later." We can practice that. Um, maybe I'll show up to the birth of your child and like challenge you to a duel. Like I have to duel you before I can go in the room. Yeah. Okay. We can do that. Okay. Cool. We'll, we'll spitball on that just for a little bit more. It'll be, it'll be a good time. But, uh, you know, before we get in, <laughs> before that happens, um, I want to introduce everybody to the guest of our episode today. Uh, we are joined by Max Nichols of a little uh, little game development studio. Up in uh, Washington. S- some people may have heard of. Name of Bungie, of course, responsible for all-time great classics such as uh, Halo's 1, 2, 3, ODST, Reach, Destiny 1, Destiny 2, um, just uh, I, some one of one of the biggest of AAA game studios. Um, Max, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I'm, I'm always excited to, to chat about my obsession, the Zelda series, uh, which is why I do what I do. Well, we were, I mean, I, we totally understand that. We were so excited about talking about Zelda that we started a podcast just so that we could do it on a <laughs> weekly basis. So <laughs> now we have an excuse. So we totally get it. Yeah. Um, Max, we ask every guest at the top of the show just to give us a little intro on themselves. So I guess let's start there. Who is Max Nichols? Um, what do you do? What is your title at Bungie and what kind of work do you do there? Let's start off with that. Yeah. So it all starts. I, <laughs> I, when I was a kid, I was diagnosed with diabetes and I, uh, I spent several days in the hospital uh, and I found a Game Boy with Link's Awakening in it in the like kids playroom, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and and uh, definitely fell in love with that. I thought I was a pirate named Zelda. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and ever since then, <laughs> I've been a Zelda fan. Um and that that led to me wanting to become a game designer. Went to college for it, um, and then uh, finally broke into the industry. And these days, I am at uh, Bungie. I work on Destiny Two um, and various updates and expansions for it. 
Um, and my job title is senior technical game designer, Ooh. Um, which is a bit of a misnomer for various reasons. Uh, usually a technical game designer is someone who programs and I don't really actually code much, but, uh, but I'll take it. Uh, I can't complain about where I am right now. That's for sure. Uh, and I work on the world systems team at Bungie. So I help build systems and rules related to what kind of activities and modes and difficulty settings we have in the game. Yeah. Um, obviously I, I, I think we can all say that you, you definitely made the right choice as a child, uh, going for the game boy with Link's awakening over say like <laughs> the, the stack of back issues of highlights magazine or mm-hmm. something. Yeah, definitely, definitely a good choice there. I think you made the right call. Um, Obviously, the work that you do day to day working on Destiny 2, I mean, Destiny 2 is a very different kind of video game than Zelda. Um, so I, I, I am curious how much being a lifelong Zelda fan really informs what you do as a game designer day to day or if it's if it's more of just a, an initial influencing factor than anything else. It's uh, that, that's a good question. Um so it's a little bit hard to like disambiguate the influence of Zelda versus the influence of everything else. But it is mm-hmm. certainly true that a, a lot of my game design lessons over the years, um, starting way back when I was a teenager, um, came from examining or analyzing or just spending a lot of time in the Zelda series. So it was definitely foundational to my my overall like aesthetic as a game designer and like mm-hmm. what I what I care about. Yeah. Um, and inadvertently despite never having worked on a game like zelda um a lot of my thinking is often in that direction and and a lot of my my dreams and aspirations are you know how can i you know figure out how what makes the zelda games tick and make that work for me and whatever i'm working on now so yeah it's it's definitely been a big influence uh throughout i mean i think that Zelda generally being a huge influence on the video game industry as a whole. And one of the things that I appreciate about a lot of the new content that destiny specifically is bringing out, like uh, I think the lost sectors for me are somewhat Zelda ish. They're almost dungeon related. There's a boss at the end. You get loot throughout like (laughs) there's a chest. Exactly. Like there's, there's a, there is a little bit of Zelda in, I wouldn't say every game, but, you know, a lot of games, even like you can see even the influence a little bit in Destiny, maybe stretching there a little bit. But that's that's (laughs) definitely a vibe that I get when I play the Lost Sectors or, um, you know, any of those uh, not raids. But, you know, I mean, it's just very dungeon diving, loot getting action adventure fun which i love well i think when we're talking especially when you talk about zelda and mario specifically you're just talking about two game series that i think any modern video game uh owes a lot of of its language to you know i mean that was kind of obviously there was the atari before you know the nes and and so what uh, what it actually means for something to be a video game was a little defined previous to all this but i feel like nintendo normalized the language you know um and so stuff like mario and zelda um even if we're talking about a, a game genre that is not similar in its minute to minute gameplay at all with either of those games um there's still so much lineage from that early golden period of game design that just continues to sort of trickle down and will do so forever 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, like early's at every step of the way, really. Um, but it, particularly at inflection points like the first Zelda and then again with Ocarina of Time, the Zelda series has helped really define what a what a game looks like in its era. Uh, I mean, Ocarina of Time's influence is um, obviously there's a bunch of stuff around the world and the the way combat works and stuff. But even something as foundational as like, how does camera control work in a 3D game, mm-hmm. um, especially a third person action game? was heavily influenced by Zelda. Um, yeah. Like when you play God of War, uh, some of the, some of the stuff they do was in some way influenced by uh, ground that was broken by Ocarina of Time. Well, uh, yeah, definitely. And I think that's one reason that Matt and I were so excited to start with Ocarina of Time as our first game doing this podcast, just because it's a, uh, it's a nexus point for the Zelda series narratively from a design standpoint certainly um as the first zelda to transition to 3d but also i think it is a nexus point for video games Mm -hmm. just generally speaking like you were saying so it i think it's one of the most influential game titles like probably of all time i wouldn't say it's the most but it is one of the most i think anybody who is a gamer of any kind has probably played ocarina of time and, or if they haven't played it, they know exactly what it is and they know why it's important. Like, yeah. it's it, it just is like the standard of groundbreaking influential games. Yep. So. So, Max, we um, we ask all the guests who come on the show to give us a brief history of Zelda. And, and so I guess um, where you started with it, which you've already told us, Link's Awakening, uh, but also if you had to pick a favorite, what would that be? And if you had to pick a least favorite, what would that be? <laughs> uh, and, my and least which fa- ones or, have you played? Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I've played all of them. Okay. Um, except for a couple of the CDI games, basically. Uh, Wait, and the, my, does that, my that favorite implies, is... That implies, though, that you have played a CDI Zelda game. Oh, uh, yes. I have, I have Wand of Gamelon over on a shelf over there. Ooh, man. Um, <laughs> How I don't that? have a CDI to play it on, but <laughs> <laughs> but I've got it. I ordered it off eBay, and it also came with a CDI French cookbook at the time, which was a weird bonus. Cool. Um, a weird. Bonus. Anyways, yes. <laughs> my first, so my first was Link's Awakening, and my favorite is also Link's Awakening, um, mm. which is a somewhat common trend amongst Zelda fans that their first is their fave. Um, yeah. I think the best one is Breath of the Wild. Uh, mm. The reasons I like Link's Awakening mm. the most is, you know, nostalgia and personal stuff. Uh, and my least favorite, uh, it's probably, um, it's probably Skyward Sword. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Matt died a little uh, bit on the inside just now. Yeah, a little bit. And, and the reason for that is... Um, over the years, there have been many different visions of what a Zelda game can be or should be. Um, mm-hmm. The Zelda team has explored different directions. And I recognize that Skyward Sword is beloved by many people, but it it uh, it did not explore the sort of things that I love about Zelda games um, mm-hmm. very much. Uh, and it embraced some design choices that I didn't like. Uh, so I still thought it was a good game, but wasn't what I play Zelda for. The um, I guess is the with with the linear progression nature of the game and also the segmentation of its of its world be two things that you 
are are referring to that you didn't enjoy? Yeah, pr- pretty much. Um, I mean, I I like Zelda games best when they are they're about exploring a world. Um, like there's you can find quotes from Miyamoto where he says, uh, "Zelda has an epic story and all, but to me, it's all about hiking." Um, end quote. <laughs> Uh, yeah. And that's kind of how I look at it as well. Like I want to be freely exploring in an overworld um, and finding, finding cool stuff uh, in that world. And Skyward Sword had much more of a focus on tight spaces um, and navigating. Like they made their overworld act a lot more like a dungeon, honestly. Mm-hmm. And I like having, the contrast between dungeons and the open world. Yeah, no, I, I definitely understand that. So I guess interesting that I love that quote from Miyamoto. I've seen it before. Um, I guess if we take that to be the, the mission statement or at least Miyamoto's mission statement for what the Zelda series should be, then breath of the wild really is the purest possible interpretation of that mission statement. It's just about hiking. Pretty much. Uh, <laughs> I've heard people accuse, I've heard people accuse it of being a walking simulator um, or climbing, but or yes, swimming, it's, or it's about being in that world and uh, being present in that world because all the gameplay is about looking at the environment and figuring out how you're going to get through or across or over that environment. Um, it does a really good job of like letting you see something you want off in the distance and then it's your job to get there. Mm-hmm. Um but I think this brings up a super interesting point about just like the diversity of how people experience Zelda games and like what they look for in a Zelda game. Because for me, mm-hmm. my favorite thing about Zelda games is dungeons, is puzzle solving, is combat, is everything related to um like the temples and the even even like the ice cavern, where it's like a mini dungeon. And like to me, that's what I like the most. Um I feel like if I want to explore an environment or something or have a game where I'm just kind of walking around doing whatever, I'm going to go play The Witcher 3. I'm going to go play Skyrim. I'm going to go play something that, you know, is more or less completely designed for that. When I interact with the Zelda game, what I am looking for is challenging um, puzzle solving, semi challenging combat cool um Hmm. enemy encounters like that kind of stuff is what i look for in a good zelda game which is why i think not only i i I think that's a big part of the reason that i like skyward sword so much is because the whole game is basically that well sure yeah and i mean a hard a hard second i know this about you a hard secondary for you is the narrative oh for sure right yeah yeah so which (laughs) which explains why skyward sword is your favorite because it's basically the narrative dungeon fest absolutely i think skyward sword is the best combat in the series so I'm with Thank you there. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. I, I guess I'm a very easy to please Zelda fan. Um, I, I, I think I've enjoyed Zelda in most every flavor that I've tried it in. And I, I think I'm one of those people who is just I, I'm happy to be in the universe and wherever they want to take me, you mm-hmm. know, in each individual game, knowing that it's going to be different in some ways than any other Zelda game. I'm just, I'm happy to go there. Like take me on a journey, Nintendo. I'm, I'm on board. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Okay. Excellent. Uh, uh, one, actually one final question there. What Zelda yeah. game have you spent the most time with? That's probably Ocarina of Time. Uh, despite really? Link's Awakening being my first and favorite. 
there was a long period of time where I would have said Ocarina was my favorite. And I, mm. that was uh, at a time in my life when I had time to replay games a lot, but not money to buy new games. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Okay, well, obviously, we're going to get a little bit more nitty gritty into uh, Ocarina of Time here in just a minute. Uh, in the meantime, I'm going to get some housekeeping out of the way. If you didn't know, Sacred Realms is a weekly reexamination of The Legend of Zelda, one tiny slice at a time. The script says little. I said tiny, but I guess I guess it's not a tiny slice every time. I mean, hey, we... we- Flex with the script. The script is more like a guideline. It's a living, than a hard and fast rule. It's a living, breathing document, y'all. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Captain Barbosa. I know, right? Uh, Sacred Realms drops every Wednesday and is available on all major podcast networks. Every week, we play a new section of a Zelda game, and then we sit down here to talk and to drop our hot takes. If that sounds fun to you, please head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hit that not s- Hulu. Yeah, not Hulu. Hulu does not carry podcasts. Um, Hit that subscribe button, that like button. Leave us a review, whatever you are able to do. If your platform does not support reviews, then uh, maybe bounce over to Apple Podcasts and leave us one there in its its stead. That would be great. Five-star reviews are greatly appreciated, and they have a chance to get a shout-out here on the show. Um, I just want to say we'll get back to doing shout-outs on five-star reviews next week. Um, I want to give a big mega shout out to everybody who left us excellent reviews as part of our poster giveaway. Um, We got a lot of engagement with that and you guys said some really wonderful things and we, we really appreciate the feedback. So it made us smile. It did make a smile. Uh, keep all that coming, and and really, we we appreciate the kind words very much. Um, the the winner for that campaign has been uh, has been picked. By the way, the posters are in the mail. Um, she knows they're coming, so um, I, I'm pretty sure she's listening to this episode. When they arrive, feel free to share those around on Instagram and tag us at Sacred Realms Pod. Uh, if you want a little bit more Sacred Realms in your life, head on over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod. There you can get bonus episodes, you can write in listener mail, you can vote on what game we play next, and much more. I have one additional um, tidbit on the game voting as well. By the time that this episode goes live on Wednesday, May 19th, my birthday, by the way. Happy early birthday. I, I will be 31. You're old. I am very old. (laughs) Anywho, the poll will be up on Patreon by the time this episode goes live. Again, the next game we're going to play is going to be a top-down game, and we're going to let our patrons vote on which one that is. Just a reminder also, voting is available to every tier of the Patreon from lowest to highest. I think our, our lowest tier that we have on there is three bucks a month. So it's, uh, you know, the, the, it's the price of a white chocolate mocha at Starbucks. So gross should be, or, or, or a tall or tall black coffee. I'm yeah. Sorry. Okay. That's fair. Cool. So anywho, um, not, not too, uh, not too terrible. If, if that's at all manageable for you, please head on over there and, uh, and vote in that poll because the more people that vote, the more interesting <laughs> the pick is probably going to become. So, no doubt. Yeah. Uh, the game, the list of games that are going to be available to vote on, it's not all the top down Zeldas. Um, there are some kind of rules we want to stick to as we go through this. For instance, we don't want to play direct sequels to games before we played the game that preceded it um mm-hmm. so like a link between worlds is not on this list we want to play link to the past first spirit tracks is not on this list we want to play phantom hourglass first mm-hmm. and zelda 2 is not on this list we want to play the legend of zelda first technically phantom hourglass and spirit tracks are sequels of wind waker that's true i think um 
there's I mean, there's only so many degrees to which we can kind of hold up our progression. I mean, that's fair. You know, so yeah, yes. Uh, Phantom Hourglass is the sequel to Wind Waker. However, uh, the impetus for me leaving Spirit Tracks off of this list and wanting to play Phantom Hourglass first is more from a gameplay standpoint. Yeah. You know, because they they operate on the same touchpad style heavy um mechanic so yeah they yeah, do with the, with the stylus control and everything yeah. and uh and i feel like i i know the basic narrative of spirit tracks and i mm-hmm. feel like it will make a lot more sense after, after having, phantom hourglass, having yeah. played phantom hourglass so anyway um not a hard and fast rule for instance link's awakening is on the list it is technically a sequel to a link to the past but you can very easily play it without having previously played link for to sure. the past without without it being too much of a a problem so anyway. so give us the list what's the list uh, the list is The Legend of Zelda, A Link to the Past, Link's Awakening, Oracle of Seasons, Oracle of Ages, Minish Cap, and Phantom Hourglass. Mm. So That's actually a really good list. Quite a few to pick from there. Um, go vote in that poll. Let us know what we're playing next. We your, your decision is binding to us. We will do whatever you decide. Our future is in your hands. Even so. if it's The Legend of Zelda, we will play it. Be gentle with us. Please. <laughs> okay um without further ado uh that's been all the housekeeping i think i have to tackle this week so let's just dive right into it and get into what we played this is the sacred realms rundown a six-part analysis of what we played this week and the feelings that it made us feel today we're covering ocarina of time chapter six which includes the ice cavern and the water temple i don't think it's an exaggeration to say that this is the most controversial (sighs) section yeah. of this entire game which is why we brought a bona fide game, game designer design expert <laughs> yes to come and talk to us about it we're going to hear from him again in a second um but before we get to that as always we have part one which is the plot recap as read by matt if he'll stop jocelyn his microphone yeah i know that's, that's my bad i was reaching for my water i need to have a little drink here i missed the plot recap last week you got to take over this section so yeah now how, i've got to get back in my monologuing how'd i do mode i thought you did good okay thank you not, not as good as me but i mean that's that's okay it's i got second place in a in a race of two people so. <sighs> yeah but it's still a silver medal i know okay all right ladies and gentlemen here we are for the plot recap as we leave the inferno of mount doom and make our way down to kakariko village we feel an arctic breeze flowing our way from the direction of zora's domain with navi in tow we go to investigate the home of our erstwhile fiance ruto Upon arriving, we find the domain is nothing like the watery paradise we remember from our youth. It is completely frozen over and all its inhabitants seem to be stuck in cryostasis. Even the great King Zora is encased in a strange reddish-hued block of ice. We push further into the heart of Zora's domain to the shrine of Jabu Jabu, only to find that it too is frozen over and the great whale is nowhere to be seen. We feel the breeze coming from the direction of a cave just on the other side of the lake. I'll give you another take on the word cave if you want. Nope. I liked it. Cave. <laughs> I liked it. <laughs> okay, cool. <laughs> we make our way across the ice towards the cave on the far side to see if we can find what is the cause of this catastrophe. We enter a cavern of enchanted ice filled with monsters that send a chill down our spine. The Arctic breeze continues to blow from the heart of the cave as we push deeper and deeper in. Finally, we come to the heart of the cavern and defeat the Arctic wolfos within to break the curse and hopefully free Zora's domain. 
Suddenly, Sheik appears to inform us that the curse on the cave is only a symptom of the evil that has taken over the water temple and has swallowed the waterways of Hyrule. After teaching us the serenade of water, he departs and we begin to make our way to Lake Hylia. We free King Zora from his enchanted uh, ice block, and in gratitude, he gives us a unique Zora tunic, which allows us to breathe underwater as easily as on land and asks us to save his people and his daughter once again. Coming to Lake Hylia, we find it nearly empty. The greatest lake in all of Hyrule barely has enough water for a fishing pond. It's time to investigate the temple below and break the curse. Upon entering the temple, we find a massive cavern-like structure filled with water and various aquatic dangers. We make our way to the bottom to begin our dungeon diving, and there we find Ruto, our fiancé, at the base of the temple, also attempting to break the curse on the sacred temple of her people. After delving through a complicated and constantly backtracking temple, using our ocarina to manipulate the water level, and very often raging about how this temple layout makes no sense whatsoever, we find ourselves in a strange room with a shrine at one end and a dead tree in the middle. As we explore the room, a shadow of dread and evil envelops us and seeps into our bones. To our horror, we see a red-eyed, shadowy figure of ourselves, and he is ready to fight. After a grueling battle, we conquer our dark mirror and press on through the temple once more. The evil presence in the temple is palpable, even after defeating our dark mirror. Finally, after many raising and lowering of the water levels, backtracking through rooms a thousand times, missing multiple small keys, and getting a handy upgrade to our hookshot, we come to the room where the curse is emanating. A gigantic amoeba rises from the water on an arm of enchanted water and tries to strangle us. We join battle with the creature and with the help of our trusty hookshot, pull it from its aquatic body over and over until at last the creature is vanquished. The enchanted water drains away and the curse is lifted. We find ourselves once again in the Chamber of Sages and opposite us is none other than Ruto. She again declares how proud she is to have us as her promised love and grants us the medallion of water to help us on our quest. Before sending us back to Hyrule, she encourages us that she can feel that Zelda is still alive and that our quest still has a glimmer of hope. Upon returning to Lake Hylia, we find Sheik and once more a lake full of pure water. The curse is broken and the waterways of Hyrule are returning to normal. With the lake full and the medallion of water in our hands, we continue the quest to save Hyrule. Oh, yeah. Hey, you know what? Can we just talk? Chamber of Sages. Am I the only one who's disappointed that those medallions don't do anything? No, I'm also disappointed. Like they don't give you, I don't, I don't know, powers or yeah. I feel like they uh, should do something. Earlier versions of Ocarina of Time, they were going to be like the Link to the Past medallions, where they were items you could use. Um. Like the the three spells for Ori's Wind, Dens Fire, etc. Yeah, were originally going to be from the Spirit medallions. Oh, that's cool. Gotcha. Or not the Spirit medallions, but the 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 Sage sage medallions. medallions. Yeah, yeah. Man, well, it makes me. It makes me wonder. They must have felt like it was superfluous or or not necessary, or maybe they just didn't have time to execute it. But um, I just think like in terms of of collectibles that you get from beating a, a dungeon in Zelda games, the medallions are some of the least interesting. Like yeah. you, you get them and it's neat, but also what 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 even even in game canon, what do they do? Like, why do you have them? It's, <laughs> is it just like a keepsake or? <laughs> 
That's actually a great question. Is it, is it I like, don't know. Is it like pogs? Like you just kind of. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I think it's supposed question. to be like, I think really what you're doing is you're collecting like the loyalty or like help of the sages and that just represents, represents it. Um, yeah, fair it, enough. Yeah. It's a bit of a. We'll take it. It's as yeah, good it's, of an explanation as any. Yeah, it's a bit of a stretch, but that that's cool. Whatever, whatever. Only two sages left to find and free. This has been the plot recap as read by Matt. He's just getting better and better at it, y'all. Thank you. Yeah, he's doing great. This takes us to part two, which is our takes on this section of the game. And I want to, right out the gate, start off with you, Max. Um, If you wouldn't mind, just uh, give us us your overall thoughts on this section of the game, Um, you know, where it takes us, the things that happen, how you feel about it. And uh, also, before you do that, if you could just tell us how recently have, have you played Ocarina of Time? Uh, I wish I could say something more recent, but the last time I played it was when the 3DS version first came out, which I think was 2011 or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that sounds right. Uh, but I remember it pretty well. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, when I first played this, I Zora's Domain was one of the first places I explored as adult, like for some reason. I don't know. I was a, I was a little kid. I don't remember. Um, but I remember I remember being really invested in the idea of fixing Zora's Domain because it was such a tranquil, beautiful place in Child Link. It's one of the biggest changes you see in the child versus adult timelines, other than like Hyrule Castle Market, of course. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. So I was I was really excited that first time I beat the Water Temple and ran back to Zora's domain and is still frozen. All the Zoras are still <laughs> <out>. <laughs> You um, saved nobody. But uh but yeah, the section of the game in general, I think, is interesting because it ties together like disparate areas of the game pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um and it has various different plot threads some of which you even saw as a kid like a lot of us probably explored lake hylia in the child timeline and saw the evidence of some cool temple under the water mm-hmm. um, that you couldn't get to yet uh and then you you know you finally get to pay it off many game hours later as adult link in this timeline i i do think that that's a very interesting point i i think uh I'm trying to remember all the different dungeon sections of this game. I'm pretty sure that the water temple section requires you to be involved in, in the most geographically distant, um, you know, parts of the map from each other, like Zora's domain from to Lake uh, Hylia. They're on the exact opposite sides of the world map. Mm-hmm. So um, definitely a little back and forth required there. And I love your point about, um, like you can see the temple as child link. And like, I, I do remember when I was child link, the morning over the first time I played the game, I was like trying to dive down to get into that thing down there. Um, where the, obviously now we know is the temple entrance, but that's like, I think it's the only temple, uh, no, not, not necessarily the forest temple. You do see the entrance of the forest temple as a child, mm-hmm. but so the forest temple and the, um, and the water temple are the only two that you really see as child link in the first portion of the game. Right. So now there's this really satisfying sense of, um, Oh, that's what that is. And now I get to go do something about Mm -hmm. it and explore it and engage with it. And that's one of my favorite things about Ocarina of time. Um, and this, this temple in particular, I think that 
so I, I enjoyed this section of the game quite a lot. I really did. Um, it's it's a lot of fun because essentially you're getting kind of two dungeons for the price of one mm-hmm. here. I mean, I I know the ice cavern dungeon is kind and of a half. It, it's brief, you know. There's not a whole lot to it, but it is a very tonally distinct location from the water temple. I mean, yeah, they have completely yep. different vibes and feels. So. So that's excellent just in and of itself. And and you don't really have that. I, well, I guess you have the bottom of the well before you do the shadow temple Ooh, here in a bit. But like also, <laughs> also, but those, it's less tonally distinct, right? Yeah, yeah. very much uh, less. The you ice, feel very connected. Ice cavern is more, uh, more distinct and more novel in the context of the rest of the game than any of the dungeons in Breath of the Wild were from each other. That um, is true. Absolutely accurate. I think it's interesting because a lot of Zelda games have very distinct ice and water areas. You know, Mm there will be like the water dungeon and then the ice dungeon. And I like that just because it it creates a greater variety of location that you visit. And it creates a greater variety of dungeon design. Because if you have an an ice area and a water area, of course, you're also going to have an ice dungeon and a water dungeon. And this one just kind of mashes them both up together. And I do wish, like, obviously, you know, we, we all love this game. What's one thing we'd love more about it? If there's more of it, just give us more of it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, so if there had been a another adult Link dungeon, and imagine a world where the ice cavern is a full thing. That's a, that's a whole thing. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a lot of fun. But also, you know, we, we get that in Majora's Mask, so it's hard to complain about it too much here. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah one, one of the interesting things about this section is it's when it's when the world kind of opens up and you start feeling more freedom about like where you can go, what you should do. Um, if you've been playing in order up until now, by this point, you've probably you've explored the forest, you've explored the mountain. And if you're anything like me and a lot of players, you've probably done a bunch of exploration at other parts of the map. You probably tried to go to Drew Valley and you couldn't get across the bridge mm-hmm. right away. You probably you know, went to Lake Hylia and you're like, wow, this is different. Um, Mm -hmm. And here's, here's where things start to open up, get a little bigger and you start tying, taking these loose ends that you've probably found previously. And you start pulling them together and tying them together and, Mm -hmm. and figuring out like how all these pieces interconnect. Um, And it also showcases the interconnectivity of the world. Um, Like there is a relationship geographically uh, environmentally between Zora's domain, Jabu Jabu's uh, lake, ice cavern, and the lake. Mm-hmm. Um, and this yeah. kind of helps showcase a lot of that. Yeah, definitely. I just, I want to bring up one point real quick. Matt, where is Jabu Jabu? That's what I don't know. Did Ganondorf eat him? I was that, I mean, that's the only conclusion I can draw is that Jabu Jabu became sushi. Poor Jabu Jabu. I know. I mean, the dude had some real unhealthy things going on inside of him, so I don't imagine that that was anyone's <laughs> favorite meal. Yeah, I was going to say, you got to believe that all those electric jellyfish and, and whatnot kind of <laughs> spicy yeah. sushi. Yeah. Mm. Cancer sushi. Yeah. Exactly. Um, exactly. I mean, did he probably clearly he hid away somewhere and came back as Jabun in the Wind Waker like a thousand oh, years later or whatever. That's a good point. That is a very good point. Yeah, makes sense to me. Uh-huh. Which actually, weren't we supposed to also be able to go inside Jaboon in Wind Waker? Wasn't that supposed to be a dungeon that was cut from that game? That's a that's an often speculated fan theory. 
Um, yeah. I don't think I've ever heard confirmation. Uh, it seems somewhat likely. Well, if they are indeed the same character, then uh, and then and I'm and I'm Jabu Jabu slash Jaboon. Then I'm thinking, you know, I don't know. Maybe I don't want another one of these guys like <laughs> running around inside, getting up to whatever he does. So, okay, you know what? We'll choose to just like I couldn't bring myself to accept that Dave became chicken. That Dave became fried chicken for Princess Zelda. Um, I similarly refused to accept that Jabu Jabu was uh was filleted and served on a on a bed of rice yeah, to, we'll, to Ganondorf. So. We'll uh we will imagine to ourselves that he escaped to the Great Sea. Yes. Somehow. <laughs> he, he, he floated all the way down Zora's River and and then apparently through Lake Hylia all the way to the ocean. I don't know how, but we're just gonna go with that's what happened. Wherever you are, Jabu Jabu, Godspeed to you. You we wish you peace. fish. We yeah. wish you peace. We wish you peace. Um so and no more electric eel uh parasites. So I'm gonna make a call here. I don't want to roll the ice cavern into the dungeon map, I okay. think. Right? Can yeah. we just Yeah, that's fine. All right. Because I, I normally I would argue that we should do that, but also the water temple is a whole it's thing. A, it's a whole thing. So yeah, I'm just gonna get a few um observations about the ice cavern out of the way here. Number one of those is that when you're doing a three heart run in this game, one of the things you're the most afraid of in this world is, is ice keys. Yes, the freezy any oh. any freezy enemy of any kind. Those things are brutal. Yeah, um, I played very cautiously going through this entire thing. Like shoot I would everything with arrows. Well, yeah, the keys for sure. I would snipe mm-hmm. those from way far away. But the freezy dudes, I forget what they're called. Um, I bl- blizzardos or something like that. I don't remember. But anyway, the the freezy icicle dudes that skate around on the floor. I'm gonna look it up. I would never even give them a chance. I would walk into each room and immediately nuke it with Din's fire. Din's fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like <laughs> I, I did make liberal use of Din's fire as well. Yeah. Um, but uh, you know, I think that for a mini dungeon, there actually is some difficulty here. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you, you do have to play a little cautiously. There are things that can really hurt you. Uh, and there is a fair amount of backtracking that you have to do just because depending on how many bottles you have, by the time you get here, you, yep. you may or may not have to keep going back and forth from the blue flames to melt red icicles. So, yep. um, it's not I, I, like the, the map of this dungeon is not super large but it does manage to keep you engaged there uh for longer than than you would think based mm-hmm. on its size and I, I think it's fun they're called freezards freeze freezards okay yeah, freezards <laughs> cool it's uh it's probably of all the dungeons it's one of the ones that has the highest damage output of its enemies mm-hmm. um, yeah and it also has monsters that can come at you from outside your camera angle like from above or from yes. behind and they're just like mess you up by freezing you and doing a ton of damage i do wish that the ice wolfos at the end was a little tankier than uh, just a regular totally wolfos. i was gonna say that like this dungeon is fun or i guess we'll call it mini dungeon this mini dungeon is fun um it's tonally unique and and interesting and i like it a lot the it's the first instance of getting the silver rupees um you know kind of like the mario red coins oh yeah it's the first instance of that mechanic which is kind of fun um then there's the whole block sliding puzzle that you have to do to get to the red fire Mm. um or to the blue fire which also like i don't hate those puzzles anymore i used to really hate them but i don't super hate them i i dislike any instance of this in a video game 
Um, and and several several game series do this. Like Pokemon Gold and Silver has also got some very frustrating, like go in a specific line while sliding on ice. Yes, puzzles. I remember and, that distinctly. Trying to get yeah. to Lugia through the ice cave in Silver. Yeah, that is the most painful instance of this particular mechanic that I can think of. And personally. I get why it exists. Like it's a great way to hold you up for a, a span of time in yeah. a in just a, a nice square room with not much else going on. You know, but like I just never enjoy having to do this having to slide a thing on an ice floor in a specific um or pattern or arrangement and i think uh twilight princess does this later when you go to snow peak ruins but yeah just not not my favorite what do you think max from a game design perspective about uh (laughs) sliding i uh i think that they appeal to a narrower set of players than a lot of other puzzles do and I think yeah. like whenever they're placed into a Zelda dungeon, they're they're often not playing to the strengths of a Zelda dungeon. Um, like, mm. you know, in the that. sub in the set of players who enjoy Zelda dungeons, it's kind of just a corner of it that likes these puzzles. Yeah, I think I came away from it with just a I don't hate it. I don't like it, but I don't hate it. It's just kind of whatever for me. Max, if there's ever a if there's ever a sliding block ice puzzle in Destiny 2, I'm going on the Reddit. <laughs> one of the things that makes it annoying is it's just like it takes so long right like if you if you mess it up you kind of have to redo it and it's it's got all these slow animations you got to move your whole character around all the time um like i don't know it's just it's just clunky yeah i totally agree so uh, like all that to say you do this like really fun half dungeon and then you get to the what is obviously the boss room. Thank God there's no boss key. Um, and it's just a Wolfos like uh, I a do a little bit disappointing. Like it would have been cool if it was like three Wolfos or like a giant Wolfos who like tries to freeze you with some ice breath or something. Like, I don't know. I've wanted if it yeah. had a tankier or unique boss doesn't have to be like a full on boss fight, but just a unique enemy type to fight. I think that this would be one of the best non temple sections of the game. Yeah, I think even if you had had just this Wolfos, but also stuck like four ice keys in the room or something. Yeah, even, even that would would have been frantic enough to kind of add some difficulty to this whole thing. But regardless, um, I do. I love the the final room of the mini dungeon where you get your your duet with Sheik in mm-hmm. there. You get the serenade of water, which is my favorite of the adult link dungeon songs. And I think that's I think that's just because it gets used in later Zelda games as background music for Mm. for some things like I just enjoy that connective tissue. So that's probably why. But yeah, no, I think I, I so my note about that in particular is I find it very odd that you get the serenade of water before you even go anywhere near the water temple. Like, this is the only instance of that happening that I can think of. Um, Like, for the Shadow Temple, you get it, I think, in the graveyard. It's been a while since I played through that section of the game. She she gives it to you um, outside the windmill. Yeah, so, I mean, adjacent to Shadow Temple. And then, um, obviously, you get the the Spirit Temple song. What's it called? Um, The Requiem of Spirit. It's not Minuet. The Requiem. Yes, thank you. Requiem. 
Requiem of Spirit, you get that at the Spirit Temple. Like every other song, you get pretty adjacent to the temple. This one, Sheik just like shows up in the ice cavern, as we've said previously, the legitimate opposite side of Hyrule from the Water Temple. And it's like, here's the song for the Water Temple. And I'm just like, wait, wait what? Okay, <laughs> cool. Makes yeah. the world feel a little more alive. Yeah, fair uh, enough. If it everything does. isn't so self-contained and modular by itself in a little walled area. Mm. Um, I like that sort of thing. Yeah. That's well, I, I think that's the constant push and pull of this entire game is that it is the first Zelda game to exist in a 3d space. Um, and so it feels more open a lot of the time, but when you break it right down to its layout and its design, it actually has a lot in common with a link to the past. And this one, you know, does break out of that a little bit. It does, um, it does start to play with that, but you know, uh, this team was just kind of, kind of getting their sea legs designing, uh, designing in three dimensions. So, yeah, um, I, I think it moves, I think it pushes that stone forward um in some in some mm-hmm. good ways and this ha- is one of them having never played wind waker because i've heard wind waker is the best at having that feeling of an interconnected world right where a lot of things influence each other and well i think breath of the wild feels the best now but okay, yeah but wind waker- also breath <laughs> yes. of the wild is in its own kind of yeah category like it, it's it's not fair to compare breath of the wild to most mainstream zelda games because they're just different you're right and if we're setting breath of the wild aside then i think wind waker is next up and so for me like the one of the games that i have played um i would say twilight princess might be one of the better ones about having a connected world feel um obviously we've we've already kind of talked about how skyward sword is probably the most segmented um and Mm -hmm. dialed in focused in on each particular area they don't super interact um so I think Twilight Princess, one of the good things it does is there is a lot of flow and movement between all the areas. Yeah. Uh, Ocarina of Time has like a hub and spoke world design. It has like a main world and then all the other smaller areas are offshoots of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Twilight Princess is uh, has kind of three main hub areas instead. So now we have all this is just a very weird aside that I have with Ocarina of Time specifically. Um, the different colored tunics. I love, and I think the red tunic is the best looking tunic in the game. Well, now most people would say the blue <laughs> tunic, but I personally think the red tunic is the best looking. Yeah, except game. now we're back to the whole: why is this non-human person carrying around human clothes, like just ready to? Get I know, them to, <laughs> like yeah. Zora, King Zora, just like randomly has a a perfectly link sized tunic just right, hanging right. out in his pocket <laughs> for no reason. It's like, thanks. I mean, yeah, yeah, it's fine. Fruto had it made for her fiance for their future. There you go. Hey, headcanon. I like that. Exactly. (laughs) I like that. Okay. This has been part two. Uh, Let's go ahead and move on into part three, which is the dungeon map where we analyze this week's dungeon from mechanics to music and more. Of course, this week we've got the water temple. And (laughs) I want to start off this conversation by saying that. I understand why people get frustrated about this temple. I understand why it's confusing. I get the criticisms. I enjoy this temple. I like it quite a lot. Um, I think that a lot of the enhancements they made to it in the 3D version to kind of increase some signposting around various objectives that you have to do within it are are net positives. There's a section that uh, in the N64 version was easy to miss and there's a key down there and in the 3D version. Oh, I remember that. In the 3D version, the camera 
pans around and kind of shows you where you're supposed to go and it does so kind of every time you come back to that spot so kind of like the one where the platform rises with the water and you're supposed to go under yes Yes. when you do the middle the middle the middling water level and you have to do it inside the center pillar yeah yeah but uh, but so just uh, i guess the whole shtick with this dungeon is that it's got three water levels and you have to solve puzzles in here by raising and lowering the water levels. And certain parts of the dungeon are inaccessible depending on what level the water is at. So I think one of the reasons that people get very frustrated with this dungeon is that it requires a decent amount of backtracking. Uh, I mean, no matter no matter how quickly you get through all of this, you have to completely raise and lower the water twice. Yes. And that's if you do it perfectly. Yeah. If you don't miss a key, it's twice. If you do miss a key or two, <laughs> it's three, four, five times. Yeah. So I, and it is nearly impossible to not miss a key. It, it, exactly. Like, that's my problem with you it. You have it memorized. <sighs> so <laughs> I'm going to interject on Lyndon's point here. Um, and I don't mean to talk over over y'all, but like this dungeon. I missed two keys in the dungeon. I missed I missed two and I the one that I missed was behind the bombable wall underneath the first the one the the signpost where you lower the water all the way down. Oh, so I missed that one. You forgot to go back into that tunnel after you after you do the middling level. Yes. Yeah. Um, And then the other one that I missed uh, was where is it? It's the you need the key to get into the boss, the boss key room. So. The key that I didn't, the first key that I didn't have was leading into the Shadow Link fight. Yeah. So, like, more than halfway through the dungeon. Then I had to go all the way back and backtrack again to get to Shadow Link. Mm -hmm. And then you go through another decent chunk of the game after you get the long shot. And uh, then I get all the way to the end of that very last sequence of rooms where you're supposed to have a small key to open the door to get to the boss key chest. Yeah. And I did not have a small key. And so I had to go all the way back and figure out which one I was missing and how I needed to get it. And I, that just made me so angry. <laughs> so after we get done recording this episode, we're recording a bonus episode with Max where he gives us his perspective on why this dungeon is so frustrating and has such an infamous reputation from a game design perspective, like a professional perspective, somebody who does this for a living. Um, so we're not going to get as into the nitty gritty of that in this conversation. Max, I want to pass it off to you. And I guess just tell me, do you like this dungeon? Let's start there. <laughs> so I personally love the, the water temple. Um, <laughs> it is, it has a lot of what I like in a Zelda dungeon, which is that it's, um, it has like interconnected mechanics where you can do stuff in one room that affect things in another room. And you have, it has a big focus on like navigation and mental, having a, a accurate mental map. Um, Spatial awareness. Yeah, exactly. Um, and a lot of the reasons that I like it are also the reasons why it is, it is hard and painful um, for many people. And it was, it was hard and painful for me the first time I played through the game. My appreciation for this dungeon came on replays. Uh, I'm not sure that I loved it the first time through. Yeah. Um, I think that it is the most well-designed and the most intentionally designed dungeon in Ocarina of Time. I don't think that it, it's not my favorite dungeon in this game, but it is definitely, 
Um, I mean, it's a it's a Swiss watch of a dungeon, you know, like it's it's intricately designed um, and a lot of thought was very clearly put into it. Uh, yeah, uh, I'm not sure I would necessarily agree with that because I think that the Zelda team itself kind of considered it a failure. Really? Um, there are some quotes. I actually have it here. Let me see if I can find it. Uh, so here's a quote from Iji Onuma. <clears throat> Well, he would know. Um, he said, everyone talks about it, the Water Temple. So it's been a long-standing wish of mine these 13 years. Uh, oh, I have a kind of a truncated version. Let me find it. I have the full one here. But basically, they, they there's some a bunch of uh, interviews when the 3DS version came out where they talked about how they had regrets about about it. And they felt that a lot of people probably quit the game during this dungeon. Um, and that's that's why it's the only dungeon to really have much changes in the 3ds version Mm -hmm. yeah because they tried to like just fix a little bit of it yeah and those some of those changes so while you're looking for that quote i'm gonna go over the changes that i noticed like obviously we already talked about the camera zoom on the the one room that you needed to to drop down in in the center yeah central chamber um also they added signposting to each of the switches that you play Zelda's lullaby at to tell mm-hmm. you what the water level will be at each um, when if you activate that switch. Yeah. And they added um, signposting on the very bottom level where you can lower the water all the way to nothing. There's a big like signpost over the door that you have to go through to get there. So it which actually, was not there in the Nintendo 64 version. It was not that that actually um, they have that on the path that leads to each. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Raising that, and lowering point. That, I was going to get to that next is there, there's a, a colored path that leads you to. Yeah. That shows the way. And they're and they're kind of color coded. So yeah. um, it's definitely, you know, it's all visual things. The design of this dungeon didn't change at all in the right. in the 64 to 3DS version. It's just that they're you get some visual cues. Yeah, to help they're, you they're using visual language to help. Um, to help kind of carry you along mm-hmm. f- from one point to another where the transition may have been a little bit more yeah. uh, opaque. Yeah, and I think my... So my biggest gripe with this dungeon, I actually do, as a whole, like the dungeon. I think it is a. I think it is a good dungeon. It's hard and complicated, and there's there's things I like about it. The thing that I dislike the most about this dungeon is that it is completely unforgiving. Like, if you miss something you have to start all the way over. Yeah. Like you can't, you can't go from full water level to half water level. You have to go from full water level to no water level back to half, then back to full. Like there's no, there's no give or take. Mm-hmm. It's just, you have to start the process all over again. Yeah. Like each, if, each switch is a one way switch. Exactly. And I think that if they had a way to where it was, you can go from, Uh, empty to full full to half like if you could go both ways with it i would enjoy this dungeon about a thousand times more than i do however (laughs) some of the some of the uh puzzle solving of navigating the dungeon and stuff is a lot of it arises from the fact that it's one-way switches right uh because it 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 does this cool thing i might be jumping the gun here a little bit but it does this cool thing where it's it traps you into different segments of the dungeon at a time mm-hmm. um which in some ways actually makes makes the player's job easier because when they're in a section 
they only have to think about that section. Like they know they can like turn off a bunch of the doorways in their mental map because they're like, I can't go that way. I can't go that way. It narrows their choices. Hmm. Um, so that's a blessing and a curse. Uh, actually yeah no it's uh it's it's definitely it's definitely a good point i mean a lot of the a lot of the difficulty of this dungeon just does come from the the necessity of its design yeah you know um which which i like i really i really do and i i've played this enough times to where um i didn't miss any keys when i played it this time just because I again I've played this game so so many times so I, I I've got it committed to memory but it really is just down to being very intentional about going going everywhere that you possibly can go at each level of the water so when it when it when you completely drain it you make make absolutely sure that you cannot physically go anywhere else before you raise it to the next level and then and then and then you you just have to be very intentional about um exploring every nook and cranny um at a time just because if you don't then you'll do exactly what Matt's talking about where you'll have to backtrack from a a different water level and then that yeah. takes you know 10 minutes to kind of get back to the one you need to be at yeah so it's one of the dungeons where the simple act of moving around from room to room or even within a room is is kind of hard. There's a lot of friction. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just walking through it. It's hookshotting, climbing, uh, navigating currents. Yeah, it's almost it's almost like movement is part of the puzzle solving right of the water temple, which I, I think is very I think it's really cool that they were able to integrate that into the dungeon to where part of the solve part or part of the part of the dungeon mechanic is how do I get where I want to be? And that whole concept there, I don't think really many other dungeons do that. Yeah, it's it's less about how do I get out of this room and it's more about how do I how do I get to the door that gets me out of this room? Yeah, you know. So that that is fun. I, I do want to talk about the aesthetics of the dungeon just for a bit Ooh. because I really love the look and feel that's mm-hmm. going on here, and um, you know, kind of add this to our ongoing list of uh, 3D glow ups from the N64 version. Huge glow ups. Yeah, it, it it looks really good. They added some cool ornamentation, especially in the center room. There's like these yeah. kind of lantern the, looking the cages things. things that are on the the corners. Yeah, yeah, they're hanging from the corners of each uh, of each level. Um, there's a lot more detail on the walls. These kind of mm-hmm. cool intricate woven patterns um it just makes me wonder if if we ever got what some people want to have happen which i don't think we will where nintendo like all these uh ocarina of time unreal engine yeah things you see online right um yeah that'll never happen no never but it does make me wonder if if you went back and you actually just had infinite time and resources to work with and you were just like okay we have no graphical constraints or at least not many. Um, what, what can we really do with this place? Uh, I'd, I'd be interested to see what they, what they would come up with for this one, because mm-hmm. just kind of the, the subterranean water cave feel, yeah. I, th- I think is cool in and of itself. I agree. It's got a very nice kind of like shimmering light quality to a lot of the visuals. Um, yeah. And the same kind of shimmery underwater, effect is applied to the sound of like the instruments and the the music yeah Um, yeah 
it's a very cohesive like aesthetic that, that you can kind of feel it in everything from the, the way it looks to the way you move around to the monsters that are there. Uh, it's, it definitely has a strong sense of place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think this actually the soundtrack for this dungeon benefits the most from this trend that we were talking about a few episodes ago, where dungeon soundtrack music in Ocarina of Time is by its very nature a lot more subdued than yeah. it is in other Zelda games. It's much more atmospheric. Um, and and this dungeon is no exception to that rule. But I think that it capitalizes on that very intentional choice. And and I think it, it does create that sense of place that you're talking about very well. Yeah. One of the things that I appreciated most about the the kind of graphical glow up was there. So there are two that I want to call out specifically the uh, the dark link fight room. I've always loved that room. Like it is so I love it. It is so like surreal and spooky. And as soon as you enter the room, you're like, oh, this something's going to go down in this room. Well, you feel like you're on your back foot from the yeah. moment that you step it, in. Yes. Like it's off putting. There's this dead tree in the middle of like a shallow lake and you can see on the other side a shrine and you're like, okay, I obviously need to go into the shrine. Like it's just very, oh, it's so good. And I think the the 3DS graphics really lend a lot of um, sharpness and um, texture where the Nintendo 64 version was lacking in both. Yeah. Um, And I mean, the Dark Link fight, which I think we'll we'll probably spend a, a chunk of time on in a second but um dark link fight is amazing uh the other room specifically in this temple that i very much noticed the difference was the boss room Mm -hmm. actually when you're fighting morpha so if i remember correctly in the n64 version the walls were just bare other than the spikes and it was just kind of it was a thing but in the 3ds version the walls have dragon motifs all over there's like cool uh scripting that's running along the sides like the whole room actually feels like the centerpiece of a sacred temple and that's supposedly what the water temple is to the zoras right like they go here to worship or whatever like this room feels like that obviously it's got a whole bunch of spikes everywhere which probably doesn't make a lot of sense (laughs) but (laughs) our our childhood church growing up also similarly was the the, the, room full of spikes yeah the walls were lined with spikes it was very (laughs) yeah it's not true it's inaccurate yeah one of the things that maybe doesn't hold off about Ocarina Time Dungeons is they definitely don't read as functional places that actually have a purpose in the <laughs> game's world. <laughs> Except for maybe the Forest Temple. Yeah. Um, but that's... Uh, I'm willing to suspend my disbelief there. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. We'll have a bigger conversation about that next week with Kylie when we talk about the Shadow Temple because... Oh, man. Who <laughs> boy, I've got thoughts. Yeah, uh, so many thoughts. <laughs> yeah, um... So I want to talk about the Dark Link fight real quick. Yes. Because this is my favorite room in the entire game. Agreed. There is no visual precedent set for it anywhere else in the game. It is so off-putting. Yeah. It's very unique. Um, For the fight itself um, is actually harder than I remember it being. Um, See, it was easier than I remember it being. So I don't know what it was this time. I don't know if I was just doing something weird, but... Um, what were you going to say, Max? Much, much easier if you have the two-handed sword. Ah, sword. that um, makes a lot of sense because the animations of Dark Link kind of mirror you if you're doing the sword and shield, mm-hmm. um, and it, you get blocked a lot, and it's kind of hard to land a hit. Yes. But if you have the bigger on sword, you can just kind of do the jab, and it just gets through. Really? Um, he doesn't so jump on top of the difference. sword. 
because I know if you if you do the stab move with the sword with the master sword, he jumps on top of your sword and smacks you. I don't think he does that with the bigger on sword. Hmm. We'll need, we'll need to. I might be misremembering. That. It's been a while since I've. No, that's, <laughs> I yeah. always switch to the master sword because I think it's more fun that way. But yeah, agreed. Um. So like I, um, and I actually have a weird question. Do, does he have the same amount of health points as you do? Because the fight was also a lot longer than I remembered it being. Like I had to hit him a lot more times than I remember having to hit him. That actually I doubt it. No, 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 no. <laughs> okay, okay. You say that, but I thought the fight lasted a ton shorter than it normally did. I only had to hit him three times. Yeah, I had to hit him like out, twelve times, and I only had three hearts. Yeah, I I had to hit him a solid ten plus times, and I have eleven hearts or had eleven hearts at this point. I I think he. I think his health points scale with you because I had to hit him a ton of times. It was annoying. Huh? That is fascinating. That is. I don't know. I don't know how we can confirm or deny that. Like, I mean, I'm sure we could Google it and find out. It's interesting because like one of the things you usually don't want to like, it's cool to throw in a detail like that, but it's often kind of wasted if players don't realize it. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I wouldn't be shocked if that was true, I guess. Uh, I'm go- I'm googling it right now because I I mean like I said literally I hit him three times and he was down and I literally was sitting here I was sitting here thinking man that was quick yeah. I don't remember I, I I hit him a lot <laughs> so I I don't know that's that's just an interesting observation and I I hope it's true because that would be one of those little details <laughs> that would just like make it for me it yep confirmed Dark yes. Link Dark Link has the same amount of health as Link the number of heart containers the hero has equals the number <laughs> of hits with which the Master Sword takes to defeat his doppelganger wow. that is amazing I never knew that I love that that is wild and also. I feel like I, I I don't regret doing a three heart run. It's a challenging way to play this game, but mm-hmm. I feel like I was doing this encounter a disservice by having made that decision. Yeah, I, about, I felt like I was really <laughs> dueling him after a while. I was just like, and he actually got some pretty good hits on me because if you once you get him down to lower health, he actually starts being more aggressive. Mm-hmm. And instead of just jumping on your sword whenever you do a stab move, he'll jump on it and then hit you. Because like at the beginning of the fight, he'll just jump on it and stand there. It, at later in the fight he would jump on it and then smack me and obviously yeah. do damage and then he, he was also doing a lot more aggressive attacks and he was doing combo moves like he was actually like getting after me and i was like oh gotta actually like fight now yeah it definitely the honestly the fight part doesn't usually stand out to my memory much but the room does it's mm-hmm. the uh it's that moment where you walk through the you walk you enter the room it's quieter it's visually striking um, it feels like the, like, it's kind of foreboding, like something is about to go down. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you walk forward to the only spot you, the only thing there is in the room, uh, other than the tree is the other door. And then you're like, okay, it's locked. How do I, and you turn around, he's there standing in the shadow of the tree. Yep. Um, and then you have to fight your innermost demons. Uh, <laughs> it, it is just interesting. Like. From a narrative standpoint, when the team was sitting down and, and coming up with the story of this dungeon, I, I would love to have been a fly on the wall in the room, you know, and just hear like what the what the impetus was for this, because it is just so I mean, and there's nothing else in this game like this. Yeah, it, it feels like this almost should have been part of the Shadow Temple, 
or the spirit temple, but it's in the water temple. I, I almost wonder if the aesthetic of the room was just figured out first and then they decided what it, what mini boss to put in there. Like, I kind mm-hmm. of wonder if the impetus for this was some some designer or artist on that team being like, I really want to have this like this look, this this room um, like with the indistinguishable floor versus foggy forever room look to it. Uh, you hear stories about that, like anecdotes from Zelda developers about how they they kind of arrive at design decisions from an, an unintuitive angle or an unexpected angle. Well, if that is the case and that's how that happened, then uh, I'm I'm glad that that designer managed to fight through and and make this thing happen because mm-hmm. the game is certainly better for it. Absolutely, yeah. Eiji uh, Onuma was the lead dungeon designer for Ocarina of Time. Um, back before he became the you know the overall director and then producer of the franchise, uh, this was his first Zelda game, and they put him in charge of the dungeons. And thus begins a long history of of excellence on the on the part of A.G. <laughs> yeah. Onuma. I mean, man, no doubt the, the Godfather of Zelda. We have much to thank him for. No doubt. Yeah. Um, okay, so I do want to go ahead and move along from Dark Link and talk about the boss fight in this dungeon. Max, where does Morpha sit for you in the in the canon of of Zelda bosses? Forgettable. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. I don't really care about Morpha. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's. I was extremely uh, afraid the first time I played the game. I was expecting like a hard. I expected a boss that was going to be as hard and as daunting as the temple was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and in a, to a certain extent, I'm glad it wasn't. Uh, it's it's almost like a breath of relief at the end of the dungeon to have such a straightforward, simple, easy boss fight. Uh, yeah, I'll agree with that. I think uh, I I don't love fighting Morpha. I think the concept is really cool, and it's not borne out at all by the graphics that they have to work with here. You know, um, I think it just ends up kind of looking a little goofy. Yeah, yeah, the water pillars and whatnot. Because there's a really cool piece of concept art from. I don't remember if it was on the game box or if it was in a guide, but it's an official piece of Zelda art and it shows Morpha. Yeah. Like kind of wrapped around link and he's dropping the master sword and it looks really cool. And this fight looks nothing like that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, this, this fight to me is just, it's kind of, I don't want to say disappointing, but sort of disappointing. Um, the only the only thing about this boss that is even remotely difficult is it takes down a ton of health if if the tentacle is able to wrap around you like it's a solid five hearts. Yeah. If that tentacle grabs you, mm-hmm. um, it's not hard to avoid that from happening there to avoid that. So, you know, not super crazy, but if it does happen and you're on a three heart run, you're screwed. Yeah, I uh I do want to throw out, I think it is a technically incredible boss. Like, for mm-hmm. for that era, for that game on the N64, I think uh, it was probably really difficult to build. Um, and I think they achieved something pretty cool from kind of a technical implementation standpoint. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I think that uh, Water Temple bosses... Are, are certainly i mean you can kind of put them into their own interesting subcategory within the canon of zelda games they are 
they are typically much more unique encounters than a lot of the other bosses that you fight. And Morpha definitely is very low on the list for me. Um, I always, yeah, I love a boss fight that makes me feel scared, you know? And some of my favorite water temple bosses will do things with like space. Like in Twilight Princess, you drop into this dark, incredibly deep pool of water. Mm -hmm. And it's like, I, I have this fear of vast water that you can't see your your surroundings you're from. a scuba diver i yeah but i've only ever been during the day i mean like it's the same reason that the dianoga boss fight in okay well, that's in fair, shadows yeah. of the empire scared the heck out of me as a kid because you're in this massive pool and it's cloudy and you can't see but you can see enough space to just uh to, for, for the immenseness of it to be communicated and i don't know it's just it's terrifying to me um this boss fight does not do that no <laughs> imagine if they had made you like put on your iron boots and fight him in the water see and, that would have been uh, really cool it it could have been a very complicated boss fight yeah um imagine having to press the start menu and switching back and forth between iron boots or not every five seconds during a boss fight that'd be a pain in the ass <laughs> yeah i wouldn't uh, love that <laughs> there's a lot of ways it could have gone and i mm -hmm. think they they landed on one that was a pretty safe choice um from like a gameplay complexity perspective uh but doesn't have a lot of impact compared to some of the other bosses like goma or yeah yeah since you brought it up, I'm going to take this opportunity to thank Nintendo for um, making the Iron Boots uh, uh, an item within the items menu and not within the gear menu in the 3D remaster mm -hmm. of this game. Man, I think one of the reasons that a lot of people hated this temple so much in the N64 version is because you were constantly having to go to your start menu and equip and unequip your Iron Boots from that rather than being able to bind just, it to yeah, your... Yeah, just hit Y. Yeah, or X or, or whatever, yeah. whatever button you have it bound to. So yeah, that quote I was looking for earlier, uh, Numa talks about how that in particular was a big regret of his. Yeah. Um, yeah, they fixed it. Yes, they and did. It, and it is much better for it. Um, okay. So I, I'm going to go ahead and move us on out of the dungeon map because we're going to cover this more in the bonus episode. That has been part three. I want to move on to part four where, uh, Matt and I will kind of run you through what side quests we did in this section of the game. Um, which I, which I do have a few, but Matt, I'll let you go first. I only did one and it was to get fire arrows. Cool. Okay. So again, we have a, a pretty hard and fast rule that as soon as, as soon as you are uh, able to control Link again after having received the medallion from the Chamber of Sages. We save and quit the game, and that's yep. next week's. But I also, I mean, you're yeah. right. You're right it's, there, and it's at the exact right time of day. The yeah. sun is right. Like literally, you just turn, shoot, boom, fire yeah. arrows. So yes, I also got. I, yeah, I, I also that. slightly broke our rule and got the fire arrows. But I feel like it's justified. Yeah. Um, okay. <laughs> Moving back to side quests, I uh, I got the fire arrows as well. I went back to Lon Lon Ranch and I got the cow. Nice. Yes. After you told, after you informed me that that was a thing you can do last yep. week, I did, never knew that, but went and got the cow. <laughs> um, it took me four tries to beat that stupid obstacle course. Really? The record. Yeah. I kept getting, like, I kept hitting the finish line right at 50 seconds, ah. which doesn't count. Nope. So that, that was, I beat my head against that for a minute, but yeah, I got the cow. And then I also did start the big Goran sword quest. I got as far as receiving the uh, saw 
Nice. Yeah. So, and I'll talk a bit more about that here in just a second, but that's where, that's where I got to with my side quests. Didn't do it. Didn't do a ton. Yeah. I'm going to really start heavily on side quests. I think for our next episode, now that I have, I feel like the long shot is so crucial to, uh, Skullshula hunting number one, which is one of my big ones that I'm doing this time around is getting all hundred. Um, so I'm I'm going to be hitting side quests a little bit harder now that I have what I would consider to be like the core items yeah. that you need for every side quest. Max, have you ever 100%ed this game? Uh I think so. Okay. Um <laughs> I I had a friend a friend in my of mine and I uh on one of our save files we got all of the Skulltulas and we were like we got the really disappointing reward, which is the silver rupee or the gold rupee or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we realized that we could get the rupee again. Every time you talk <laughs> yes. to him, you could just get the rupee infinite over again. Infinite rupees, infinite 200 rupees. And we wrote a snail mail letter to the author of the strategy guide, the versus book strategy guide to correct them and be like, no, this isn't as bad as you say it is. You can get it all over again. Oh, that's hilarious. Uh, the strategy guide didn't catch it. Nope. Wow. <laughs> Which strategy guide was it? Do you remember? It was the versus books brand, um, okay. which is a long gone brand of strategy guides, but they yeah. had a bunch of cool, unique map art in it. That was like semi official. So, um, yeah. So you may have seen this Twitter thread a few weeks ago. I was so Melora history of Hyrule, who we both follow. Um, yep. Want to plug her work again because she does amazing art chronicling of past Zelda games. But she was trying to figure out which she posted a piece of concept art from a guide and was like, hey, does anyone know which Ocarina of Time guide this was from? And I'm sitting here like, oh, my gosh, I had that when I was 10. And so then I go yep, on. A, it was the a, official Nintendo Power Guide. Yep. Yep. So I go on I go on this furious 20 minute long Google spree just looking at images <laughs> of all the Ocarina of Time guides cuz like I want to be the one. I want to tell her which one it is. <laughs> um but uh <laughs> but yeah, so I and I don't remember if that one had the correct information about what you what you get from getting all 100. <laughs> it really doesn't matter because there's nothing to spend rupees on anyways. Yeah, right. Uh, That's true. Unless you get your uh, tunics taken away by like likes, then you just don't have you don't like (laughs) spend money on anything. (laughs) If you need to go buy a new Guan tunic every time you log on, then that's for you. Melora does have the scans of the versus book guide up there. If you want to see the maps I was talking about. Yeah, I'll Uh, need to go back and check those out. She's like the best archivist the Zelda community could ask for. I desperately want to get her on for an episode at some point. So we'll see if we can make that happen. Okay. uh, That has been side quests. I think that's about all we have to say this week. Let's move into part five, which is Z targeting where we lock onto a fascinating character or enemy that we happen to cross. Um, Matt, who was your Z targeting pick this week? Um, I would have to say my Z targeting this week is uh, Sheik. Okay. Sheik. Uh, continues to be a fascinating character canonically confirmed by Ruto to be a dude today or, or this time around. Well, Ruto, Ruto, Ruto thinks, thinks uh, yeah, yeah. Well, don't spoil it. I'm Linden. sorry. Um, <laughs> Sheik is cool. Uh, Sheik does a lot of cool things. Uh, it, apparently he saved princess Ruto from the ice by himself, which makes him dope. Yeah. I want to see that anime. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so yeah, I think Sheik's pretty cool this week. 
Mine was the son of the master carpenter who you meet as part of the big Gorn sword quest. Um, mm-hmm. He is the guy that as child link, he's sitting up against uh, the, the, the middle tree in Cockerico village. And he's kind of just kind of gloomy over there. But then as an adult, you have to, as part of the big Gorn sword quest, you have to bring the blue chicken, the blue cuckoo, excuse me, Kojiro to him. Uh, Cause it only crows for him. And it, that kind of progresses you forward. But this guy has a really interesting story. There's uh, there's a cool exchange that goes on as part of this quest where um, you have to uh, what is it? You take the you take Kojiro to him, and then he says that he needs medicine from the from the Hag in Kakariko Village, and she has some great dialogue about you know how how foolish he is to have gone into the lost woods and she warns that the medicine that she makes won't work on a monster and you go back to find him to give him the medicine and he's gone and there's a kokiri there that says that he he was in the forest too long and he turned into a stalfos as anyone does who is not a kokiri and i and I always just thought that this was such a cool, ominous little side story. I mean, this game doesn't do a whole lot of exploration of side characters for the most part. Um, and when it does, they're, they're usually pretty small snippets like this. But I just thought this was a neat one. That actually is a very neat one. I don't remember the last time I did the big Goron uh, quest trading. I normally don't bother with it, but um, I'm excited for it now. I think I'm going to... I'm. Like I said, most of my side quests are going to be this next week and the week after, so I'll probably try to hit that one up this week. Yeah. Max, do you have a character that stands out to you as being worthy of recognition from this section of the game? Oh, boy. Um, I, uh, I'm going to say... Do you specifically want this chunk of content or the whole game? This, this chunk of content, if you have one from it. Yeah, I... Uh, I'm going to say Ruto herself because cool. uh, I mean, I don't necessarily think she's the most well-written character ever, but nope. <laughs> <laughs> I, nope. as a child playing this game, I found Ruto really weird and interesting. And like, I, uh, like some of, some of what she went through and, uh, the way she like acted toward Link stuck with me. Mm-hmm. Like I would think about it occasionally. Um, and it's cool to see her like more matured version in the adult like like she's clearly still kind of playful about the whole fiance thing when you meet her again right um but she's you could like some of her dialogue is a little bit of this tinge of uh you know grief sorrow and um you know responsibility to her that was missing when she was a child version yeah the, that implies I, I a lot about what she must have gone through I would say the bratty streak is gone. Yeah, for the yeah. most part. And it's it's more it's definitely more playful in nature at this point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great one. I mean, Princess Rudo is certainly the first in a long line of notable Zora royal children. <laughs> who have massive crushes on Link or want to be betrothed to him. Or who the fan base has a massive crush on. Uh, also true. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Sidon. Yeah. Princess Ruto. Sidon before Sidon. <laughs> the, the pre-side on yeah um <laughs> yeah okay no that's a great one that's a great one uh that has been part five i'm going to move us into part six matt give us a one sentence recap Ooh. for our final thoughts on this section of the game 
It's going to be two sentences, like always. Okay. The, this section of the game is tonally very well done from the distinctiveness of the ice cavern to the cohesiveness of the water temple and, you know, everything that's going on with Lake Hylia and the Zoras and just how connected it is. I think tonally, this is a fantastic section of the game. The water temple has absolutely earned its reputation as a notorious, difficult and, um, obtuse dungeon for most players who haven't gone through the water temple multiple, multiple, multiple times. Um, if you are a first time player at the water temple, this is probably like the most frustrating temple experience of your entire life. Um, and I think it earned that reputation, man. I guess that was technically two sentences, but that second one was just a big old run on sentence. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I got knocked in English class in high school for having a <laughs> lot of run on sentences and comma splicing. So okay. the trend continues. All right. Good stuff. That has been the Sacred Realms Rundown. We will come back next week for another Sacred Realms Rundown, and we'll explore a new section of the game. We're going to go ahead and start getting this tied up and get ready to get out of here. But before we do, I have a listener mail that I want us to go over. We're each going to answer this question. Uh, as always, if you have a question or an observation for us, or if you want to tell us just how wrong we actually are, you can head on over to patreon.com slash sacredrealmspod, where Kokery Sword patrons and above can write into the show. This week, Mike, a.k.a. The Detective, writes in and asks, What are some roleplay quirks that you guys impose on yourselves in Ocarina of Time or other Zeldas? Example, I always try to wear appropriate clothing for the geographical area that I'm in, at least before Breath of the Wild made you do that. Mm, yeah. So, Max, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you go first. What, what is a quirky Ocarina of Time tradition that you have, or a Zelda, or just any Zelda? <laughs> well, uh, I uh, this is maybe not in-game role play like the question listeners asking about, but um, I had a tradition when we were during a, my teenage years. I think it was five or six years in a row. Every New Year's Eve, I would I would try to land my final blow in the final boss fight against Ganon as the clock struck midnight. Um, I don't really remember why I started doing that. Something to do with you know wanting to dedicate my next year to how much I love the Zelda games or something. I was a melodramatic kid. <laughs> uh, that was my big tradition. <laughs> nice. Nice. That, I mean, that's a, that's a good one. That is a good one. Matt laid on me. What's yours? So actually I do the exact same thing that Mike does. Um, our, our wonderful listener. I, I do that as well, but I'm not going to steal that as my okay. answer to the question. Cool. Um, so Mike, you're not alone. I also wear culturally appropriate clothing. Um, in each segment of the game. Uh, if I'm in Death Mountain or Kakariko Village, I'm wearing the red tunic. That actually extends to the Shadow Temple as well. I kind of, it's in the vicinity, so I do it there. But um, So I do that. I think I have a lot of quirks with other games, um, like, you know, Mass Effect and uh, the way that I play other games, uh, I do have a lot of quirks. When it comes to Zelda, though, I don't have too terribly many um, other, I guess the main one is that I really don't use other, um, swords besides the master sword. Like even when I have the big Goron sword, I more or less refuse to use it because I've always felt that link is supposed to use the master sword. Mm -hmm. And like, that is the weapon. And I don't know if that's necessarily odd, but it's kind of comes down to like, 
the master sword is supposed to be the sacred blade that seals away evil. I feel like it should be more powerful than other swords in the game. Like in Majora's Mask, I'd never use the great fairy sword. Mm-hmm. I always get it. I never use it. Um, I use the gilded blade. Yeah. So I, I guess that's a little quirk of mine. Okay. So mine is going to be Majora's Mask centric. Every time I beat that game, I'm very concerned with the implications of like the multiverse and multiple timelines that are existing (laughs) based on all the time travel you do. And I always want to create a perfect timeline to end things on. Oh, yeah. So what I'll do is every time before I beat before I go to the moon to beat the final boss in Majora's Mask, I always save the Anju and Kafe quest. Yeah. To be the very last thing that I do. And I'll start a new three day cycle. And in that three days, in that final three day cycle, I will do the Anju and Kafe quest. I will save Romani from the aliens. I will beat all four, four temple dungeons. bosses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and restore all four sections of Termina to the state they're supposed to be in. Um, I will. That's oh. all that I do. I, I la- last time I did it, I actually went and played the songs for the for the Gorman, the, the or the the dude in the milk bar who's sad. Really? I have to play the songs for. I did That's that. For, I did that for him. And uh, there's one I'm forgetting. I know. Oh, crap. I don't uh, remember. Oh, <laughs> I I um I get Lulu's eggs and return them. Ah, that's a good one. That takes a long time. Save the Deku Butler's son. You can't. No matter how hard you try, you can't save the Deku Butler's son. Which is very sad. It is very Um, sad. That takes a long time just to do the eggs. Like so, I I do the same. I do the same thing. I always before I go confront Majora on the moon, I always beat all four temples. I do the Anju and Kaifa quest, and I do I save Romani from the aliens. how do you fit the eggs in there? That is a long. That's what that's what takes the longest. Beating the bosses is is it's super what, easy. Is, is what goes pretty quickly. Yeah. But, um, yes, that is what takes the longest. But it's really cool when you get all that done, and then the last thing you do is you reunite Anju and Kafe, and then and then you go to the moon. Yeah, and then the, the the clock is counting down. The moon's about to crash, so you head on up there and yep. you start the final encounter. And I just, it's a really fun, frantic way to go into the to the well, and, final. And so, like that, for of, me, of like tying up Majora's Mask, like the, I feel like those are the major loose ends, right? And like you can go into the final boss fight knowing that you've set it all up for success. There are very few Zelda games that I ever like do completionist kind of playthroughs on. Mm-hmm. Majora's Mask is the exception. Like I always get all the masks. I do every side quest I can find because Mm -hmm. like they're actually kind of meaningful and emotional and i love that yep couldn't agree more well guys that has been this episode of sacred realms again we're going to go right into recording our bonus episode for this week with max talking uh doing more of a deep dive into the design of the water temple why it's frustrating and maybe we'll even ask max how he would have designed it if it were up to him who knows (laughs) well we'll we'll get into it's going to be a great conversation um if you enjoyed today's show and you would like a little extra sacred realms in your life head over to patreon.com slash sacred realms pod and become a patron if you don't have any rupees it is not a problem five star apple podcast reviews are a fantastic way to support us more reviews means that more people see our show and that makes us very happy hylians follow us on twitter and instagram at sacred realms pod for updates on the podcast and for behind the scenes action 
Sacred Realms will be back next Wednesday with our thoughts on Ocarina of Time covering the Shadow Temple. And we we have the wonderful Kylie Parker uh, back on for that episode. We're very excited to welcome her back to the show because we had a, a blast talking to her last time. We'd love for you to play along with us and to share your thoughts on our social channels. Um, we're on Twitter and Instagram at Sacred Realms Pod. Uh, Ocarina of Time can be played on the Nintendo 3DS or 2DS or, of course, on your trusty old N64. Max, it has been a pleasure. Thank you for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. Hey, where can people follow you real quick before we sign off on this? I'm pretty active on Twitter under my just my name, Max Nichols. Um, shouldn't be too hard to find there. Cool. All right. Sounds great. Um, and and before we log off, I do just want to say again, uh, thank you to you and to everybody who works at Bungie for all the wonderful work that you're doing on I Destiny I was going to say that. Because we, <laughs> sorry. Well, th- this thanks comes equally from both of us. Destiny has been a very big part of Matthew's and my life for a long time now. So yeah. we're very grateful to you guys and the work you do. Those of you listening, if you are looking for a fun game to play with some friends, Destiny 2 is in a really great spot right now. And it has been a huge part of keeping Lyndon and I connected while I was at college, while he was moving around and while we've been doing a lot of things differently. It's a great place to connect with friends and hang out for a couple hours and shoot some aliens. So if you want to support Bungie, it's free to play on Game Pass right now. Um, And I think it's free to play in general. So be a Titan main with Max (laughs) and I and we'll have some fun. So thank you, thank you Max and everyone at Bungie for making a fantastic game. That means a lot to Lyndon and I specifically. Yes, indeed. In the meantime, guys, may your hearts be full and may your arrows never miss. We will catch you next time. Sacred Realms is an independent podcast production, which is produced, edited, and mixed by me, Lyndon Willoughby. Our music comes from Zelda and Chill by Mikkel and is graciously provided to us by Mikkel and Game Chops Records. Zelda and Chill is available to stream on Spotify or to purchase directly from GameChops.com. Finally, our thanks go to Nintendo for creating such exceptional and innovative experiences. Bye!